Hello, and thank you for joining us on the Stay Healthy Knoxville podcast, brought to you by Simply Physio, aimed at helping you live an enjoyable, fit, and healthy life in and around our community of Knoxville, Tennessee. And now, here is your host, Dr. John Mark Chesney. Hey guys, today on the show, we have Dr. Jameson Mattingly. So super excited about having him on the show. He um, is new to Knoxville, but brings a specialty to Knoxville that we'll be getting into. He's a true expert uh, in his field. And um, he received uh, his bachelor's of science from Western Kentucky University, and then uh, received his medical degree from the University of Louisville School of Medicine in Kentucky. He was a, a resident in otolaryngology at the University of Colorado Health Sciences Center, and he completed his otology and neurotology fellowship at The Ohio State University and then joined its faculty and has uh, recently uh, relocated here to uh, Knoxville, Tennessee, and joined the practice of ENT consultants of East Tennessee, where he specializes in otology and neurotology. So, Dr. Jameson Mattingly, uh, welcome to Stay Healthy Knoxville. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Awesome. Well, um, I know the first question I usually ask is, uh, you know, tell us about a little bit of your backstory. But before we do that, we have some, we need a little bit of an explanation about your bio. So tell our listeners, what what is the field of otology and neurotology? Yeah, no, it's uh, not very many people know the actual name of it. But in, you know, a basic sense, it's a specialist of the ear and the surrounding structures. But essentially what it is, it's extra training off of an ear, nose, and throat or an otolaryngology residency that really specializes in complicated ear problems and complicated ear surgeries. And there's also a a big neurological component to it. And that's why, you know, you'll hear it potentially called neurotology. And that includes implants into the inner ear, things that restore, uh, you know, the sense of hearing or the, the sense of sound, and then tumors that live in the ear or that we access through the ear that are usually located in the brain stem or different parts of the brain. But I would say the majority of my specialty really takes care of, you know, ear disease and complicated ear problems. Yeah, I look forward to getting more into that topic. And um, going back to your past a bit, would love to hear just how you got into the field of specializing in the ear, but what brought you um, really to where you are today as far as getting into the field of medicine? You know, really, it's, it's kind of weird. As long as I can remember, I've always thought about being a physician And, you know, there were times where I didn't feel as confident about that over the years. But, you know, from a very young age, you know, I think that was something that was appealing to me because I was always very lucky in that I was good at science and math. And, you know, that's a little bit of a prerequisite to getting into the medical field. I enjoyed biology and chemistry, and I liked just learning how different parts of biology work, whether that was plants or animals or whatever. And that was, you know, really transitioned into college where, you know, I, I was a biology and chemistry major, and, you know, th- those interests really got sparked by things like physiology and anatomy, so the structure and function of the body. And, you know, um, if, you, if you're if you majoring in biology in college, you really don't have a lot of options what to do afterward unless you want to go to graduate school of some sort. Um, and, you know, that led me to medical school. Uh, and uh, when I was in medical school, you know, I was really drawn to, you know, the anatomy of different parts of the body, particularly the head and neck. And that really transitioned into, you know, where there was a couple specialties that dealt in the head and neck. And that was, you know, ear, nose, and throat is probably the most uh, prominent of those as far as we deal only in the head and neck. Got some good mentors, you know, I knew I wanted to be a surgeon and, and you know, saw some really cool cases in, in ear, nose, and throat in my first experience with it. And I was kind of hooked from there. From there, it gets a little bit more, you know, into the weeds a little bit because neurotology 
Rotology and neurotology can be definitely a very tight, you know, a very small subspecialty of ENT. When I was in residency, you know, I, I really liked about everything. The thing about the year that I liked was that it was super difficult technically. We're dealing with really small spaces and some really important structures in that area. And, you know, I don't think we realize, you know, how impactful things like hearing loss and balance disorders and things like that can be on patients until you're really seeing these patients that are really struggling. Most, and, I'll, and I'll tell patients that I'm like, most people don't care about their ears until it's an issue. And so that combination of things, and then I got into some really cool research where I was actually looking at different implants and some of the technology that was, you know, just really intriguing to me. And that led me, you know, about halfway through my residency to say, you know, I think this is something I want to do. It's a little bit more of a commitment. It's the longest fellowship in ear, nose, and throat. It's two extra years instead of just one. And so then, you know, went to Ohio State, got into their, you know, to an awesome neurotology training. We did a lot of complicated stuff, a lot of cool patients, a lot of really intense pathology where we were seeing a lot of people who were really disturbed by their problem. You know, initially I was really on this academic path where I was interested in doing a lot of research and publishing and and so I stayed on there. It was a really awesome environment for me to really get my, my feet wet, so to speak. And then, you know, I kind of had a little bit of a change in, in, in career mindset where I really wanted to focus mostly on just taking care of patients. You know, a lot of that academic stuff I have interest in, but really the, the bulk of my time, I really want to spend taking care of patients. I feel like it's more natural to me. I like talking to patients. I'm an extrovert. I just like to be around people. And, uh, you know, that's what made this change come to here. And, there, you know, there's there's just not a lot of representation for people taking care of a lot of complex ears. There is some, but but there's probably not enough for the population that we have in this area. You, uh, so you mentioned that uh, otology and neurotology is um, a specialization of ENT of the ENT field, right? Like a, a, a niche, a sub niche. Um, so are there are there other like uh, niches in ENT? Yeah, there's several. The most common path is to be uh, an a, you know a comprehensive ear, nose, and throat doctor, where they take care of basically it all. And that's just you know you go through your five year residency, and then you get out and you you go to practice. And and that I think though you know that particular I guess area of ENT is where you know the bulk of the heavy lifting comes for the most part. But outside of that, you can do specialties in head and neck cancer, you know, voice or laryngology, voice and swallowing. Uh, you can do you know, sleep. So, you know, sleep apnea being, you know, one of the most common pediatrics, obviously otology and neurotology, facial plastics, and then rhinology is specialty in the sinuses. So really you can break it down to about any, any aspect of the head and neck or ENT that we deal with. Like what percentage of people actually go into a sub niche of ENT or is that um, majority of people kind of like your general physician of ENT? I, you know, I don't know the the national numbers. Yeah. Um, I know that at my residency program, it was probably 50, 50, 50 or 60, 40, 60 being went into, you know, general ENT and 40% would do a fellowship. And, um, you know, I, when I talk to other, you know, colleagues across the country, I think it's very similar there are programs where I think that there's more general ENTs that come out and there's more, there's programs where there's more, fel, you know, fellowship training. So it's probably somewhere around 50, 50, 60, 40, somewhere in that ballpark. But there's a, a there's a number of, of people who do do a fellowship in some, in, you know, to some degree. Now, I understand too that your, you know, sub niche of um, otology and neurotology is uh, like bringing something new to the Knoxville area, correct? Yeah, relatively new. There are some other physicians, but just a couple who are doing ear related stuff, complicated ear and implants. And, you know, some of that is in pediatrics. Some of that is both pediatrics and adult. There are people doing it, but it's underserved. I think, I think there's a lot more patients around this area that have these problems that either have to travel a long way or, 
or they may, they may not be able to get all the care that they want because there's just not enough providers being able to do that locally. Sure. And traveling is a huge burden on patients as you, I mean, I'm sure you've heard this from your patients before. Right. So, um, so yeah, so before coming here in Knoxville, you were up at uh, the university, uh, the university of they Ohio definitely State. definitely put the in front of it. Ohio I always State. feel weird saying that, so. But, um, but yeah, so you were teaching, right? I was teaching. So I was, uh, you know, I had a, an academic appointment. I was uh, on the faculty there. Okay. Yeah, it was uh, a lot, a lot of, it was a fair amount different than what I'm doing now, for sure. So tell us a little bit of what like brings you to uh, to Knoxville. What attracted you to, to make the move? I know, as of this recording, you're as, what, six, seven weeks here? Yeah, something like that, about <laughs> maybe eight, if we're lucky. Okay. Um, a couple okay. of different things. Some of it was luck. You know, I knew that, uh, I knew one of the partners in the group that I joined um, reasonably well for from, you know, interactions throughout residency and medical school. And, you know, I had talked to him about, you know, did the area actually need someone in this specialty? And the short answer was yes. And, you know, based upon my own research in the area, there just seemed to be, like I said, it seemed to be an underserved area. And so that that is by itself an appealing, you know, um, scenario where I could come and be in an area where, you know, just someone like me is needed. I and mean, that's probably the number one reason. Second, um, you know, uh, I have family in Kentucky, you know, it's closer to home even than, when, than we were in Ohio. And um, so that was kind of a draw. And then outside of that, you know, really the, the outdoor scene, just the area, the weather, you know, all that, you know, all the above is really why we, why we really were interested in, in this area. We, were, we lived in Denver for five years, loved the outdoor scene. It's, you know, this is a fair amount different than Denver, but it has some similar aspects in that. It's really close to like hiking and water and, you know, really outdoor activities and things like that. So, you know, a little bit of all those. Sure, sure. Yeah, that's, um, I've spent just um, maybe a long weekend in Denver. So, um, yeah, if you're comparing Knoxville to a little bit of Denver, that's, that's, I would say a, a, a It's definitely compliment. smaller, <laughs> but, but it, you know, it's right. very, people are super nice and friendly and, you know, you can get to some cool stuff in less than an hour, you know. So that's, and that's kind of way it was in Denver. I mean, there's, you know, Denver's just bigger. But, but, you know, it has an outdoor scene that we were really into. And so far we've fallen, you know, in love fast with, with Knoxville. So Sure. Well, yeah, welcome to Knoxville and to East Tennessee. So, um, and, uh, you know, going back, you were talking about some of your, like, specialty of, um, of surgical procedures, like, of even, like, you know, tumors or, you know, different um, pathology um, in, in the ear. That sounds... Um, uh, it sounds pretty complicated, <laughs> um, to say the least, um, as far as, um, I'm just, you know, imagining doing, you know, surgery. So oftentimes you'll go in through the year to do surgery. Yes. Is that right? It, you know, it's it, in some aspect, either through the ear canal, you know, or behind the ear. And that makes up basically 99% of the approaches I use to the ear. So we can make a lot of room further in. It's just, but it is a small area to work in. There's no question. And, almost all of my surgery is done under a microscope for that reason. And that's honestly, that's another appealing thing about, about this field that I liked is it was kind of cool working through a microscope and, you know. So you mean literally under a mi microscope? Everything. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, if I go through your ear canal or behind your ear, I mean, I, I may spend, you know, 90% of the surgery under using a microscope because it's just everything, you know, it's just so much smaller. I mean, you know, the eardrum itself is probably about the size of your index finger now approximately. So, and that's to me is the biggest structure that I work with. So it's uh, that's why it's you know you know it's technically it's very challenging because of that because the angles are can be funny or difficult or the anatomy and like I said it's very you know more complex there and then a lot of places. So 
the combination of that all, which which I am very biased, is why I love this field. So yeah, I'm kind of stressed out just thinking about it. <laughs> Quite honestly, <laughs> well, it, you know, it took it takes a lot of training, and that's why you know you know you have to get very comfortable with it. And thankfully, I had really great training, good people around me who were really you know, very helpful and, you know, allow me to understand some of this really complex, you know, complex area. Um, and so, you know, it, it's less stressful the more you do, obviously, but, it, you know, we, you know, it's very something I take it, you know, every surgeon does, but, you know, something you take very seriously and especially if you're working in small, tight areas. So, Right, right. Is um, with, you know, as I see different, you know, fields going towards like robotic you know, surgical procedures, is that anything or in your field or not? Really? Not like some other, uh, as, you know, some other parts of medicine where, you know, they're, they're, you're, they're just working in bigger spaces. So, you know, a robot does actually take some space to get the instruments in. And right now, you know, the ear is just not big enough to allow that. I would, I would expect over time that we would see some of that. And we are seeing some changes where we're using fancier microscopes or different microscopes or endoscopes where we actually, you know, we, you know, we stick a camera in the ear and we operate with that. Um, I would say that makes up a minority of what I do, but they're certainly changing. And I would say the biggest trend with our field is technology, you know, from a hearing standpoint or things like that. It's just really advancing because, you know, the, A, the technology is improving, but our understanding of how it all works with the brain and the ear is also improving, you know, pretty rapidly. So. I've um, seen a number of surgical procedures that are more orthopedic yeah. um, in nature. Well, that stresses me out. So there you go. Your job stresses me out. Someone coming in with like a knee that doesn't move. I'm like, I don't want any part of that. So, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's more of like, you know, watching a total knee replacement or something like that is is um, is like a carpentry shop. You know, you got the big drills and the saws. and I have little drills and little saws. It's very similar, actually. I mean, I do a ton with drills and instruments that look, you know, if you take a look at them under the microscope, you're like, I could see this in some kind of tool shed somewhere but it's just much smaller yeah i'm fascinated on just how that even happens like you should come by i'm <laughs> always ha- always happy to watch i let you watch a surgery so all right i may take you up on that if, if i'm not like i'm just already stressed out just thinking about it i don't know if i can handle watching you do it um in that regards but but man to each his own right <laughs> I guess is what you're used to, you know. That's right. Like I said, your fields, you know, those parts of your field stress me out. It's just, you know, you become very comfortable and you get uh, really into what you know, what you're what you're used to. Yeah, that's how um, I have a father and brother and other family members in dentistry. And um, I remember when I was, you know, young and, you know, people, you know, asking, are you going to be a dentist? And, you know, things like that. And I remember in elementary school, we had the mechanical pencils where you had to feed the lead, you know, through the tip. And I remember just being like, you know, you get the lead halfway in through the tip and then it snaps off if you like, you know, do it at the wrong angle. I remember just making a mental like connection of like, I don't think I want to be a dentist because <laughs> I think this is something kind of like dentistry, which um, it sounds like with your field is that magnified. It's literally. funny. It's funny how you can have those, <laughs> you know, those thoughts when you were younger and it's like, oh, that was a turning point for sure. So. <laughs> right. Well, well, perfect. Well, um, we're going to take a break here, a word from our sponsor. And then um, um, you guys stay on. We're going to be talking uh, specifically about hearing loss and getting into some real practical information on um, hearing loss, the types of hearing loss, what you can do for it, uh, things to look out for and different treatment options in regards to hearing loss. 
Stay Healthy Knoxville is sponsored by Simply Physio, a physio clinic that equips and empowers you to live your life to the fullest so that you can enjoy the things you love to do and be the person you are made to be. Simply Physio specializes in helping people get back to a healthy and active lifestyle, living free from pain and medication and avoiding unnecessary surgery. Stay tuned until the end of the episode to receive a special gift from Simply Physio and enjoy listening to the rest of the episode. All right, guys, welcome back uh, to the show. Uh, we're going to be diving uh, deep into uh, hearing loss here with uh, Dr. Jamison Mattingly. So, uh, Dr. Mattingly, tell us um, a little bit about uh, what types of hearing loss um, there are. You know, that's a great question because I think, you know, a lot of people come to the office and they kind of put hearing loss under one blanket, you know, area. And, and in reality, it can be, there's a lot more nuance to it that, um, that really goes into how we talk about treating patients you know, by far the most common hearing loss that I see is called sensory neuro hearing loss. And that's really, you know, hearing loss that originates in the inner ear. And there are a variety of causes of that. You know, as we get older, uh, you know, we have a tendency to lose some of our hearing. I mean, you know, the majority of people greater than 55, 60 years old have some degree of hearing loss. You know, some of that may not be impactful on their day-to-day communication, but there are, there are you know, more mild degrees of hearing loss in a ton of people. And then there's other things like, um, you know, noise exposure, whether that be through a job uh, or, you know, recreational stuff, hobbies they have, you know, particularly, you know, shooting guns or, you know, um, outdoor equipment, you know, ATVs, boats, motorcycles, things like that. And then, you know, uh, some people will have some, you know, kind of unusual hobbies where they'll do, you know, they say that I set up a bunch of fireworks or they, or they are going to a lot of rock concerts all the time. And they're sitting right next to the stage and, you know, you know, that noise exposure can come in a variety of shapes and colors and sizes that can be really detrimental to the hearing um, if, if exposed at a loud enough degree uh, or over a longer period of time. And then there's a type of hearing loss called conductive hearing loss where, you know, it's exactly as it sounds. There's something wrong with the sound conducting to the inner ear. And that usually means there's a problem either with the ear canal, the eardrum, or the ear bones. And um, that's a little bit more important for my specialty day to day in that that's on average, something that's potentially surgically correctable. And common causes of that can be infections, holes in the eardrums, and fluid on the ears, or uh, things like otosclerosis. And otosclerosis is basically hardening of one of the ear bones. And we can actually sometimes go in and replace those bones and really help people's hearing out a fair amount. Now, is any of that due to um, noise exposure? None of that's due to noise None exposure. Okay. You, you, in theory, can have an eardrum rupture because of noise exposure, and that can actually damage both the conductive part of the ear and the inner ear. So you can have a combination. And that's the last type of hearing loss. And it's perfectly, you fed right into that perfectly. And that a combination of those two is called a mixed hearing loss. And so, you know, people come in a variety, you know, with a variety of different problems with their ear that causes, um, you know, a mixture of those, whether it's, you know, long-term noise exposure causing inner ear damage or in with a hole in their eardrum that causes some conductive hearing loss as well. If somebody thinks they may have hearing loss, are there different um, indications that they would have one over the other? Not really. I mean, some people have a very solid family history, you know, and that's probably one thing that I uh, failed to mention is genetic components. You know, and it may not be something they experienced later on in life where they say, oh yeah, I have multiple, you know, family members, brothers and sisters, or mom and dad that have hearing loss. And so, you know, that, that, that's a, that can be a huge component of what we deal with. But uh, if someone comes and says, I've got a really strong family history of certain disease, you know, that can strongly suggest that's what's going on with them as well. So I would say most part is very difficult for people to understand, you know, about themselves, which one they could have. 
you know, if they have really bad ear infections, drainage out of the ear is probably a conductive. If they if they just are noticing some, you know, gradual hearing loss over time as they get older, or they've had previous noise exposure, it's probably sensory neural or any inner ear. But you know, what what I've found is in general, people are really bad uh, judges of their own hearing loss. And, you know, frequently they come to me because a family member points it out to them. Usually a spouse is like, hey, they can't hear me anymore. You know, I need you to take a look at this. We're, you know, I'm going to divorce this guy and, you know, whatever, you know, this is, you know, I don't get examples to quite that extreme, but they, they joke about that frequently that their husbands, you know, in particular have selective hearing and really they just can't hear, you know, I can't always rule out the former, but, you know, sometimes it truly is that, so... So I would imagine there's um, a conception or maybe misconception that um, hearing loss is a natural kind of state of aging where like, I mean, because, you know, most people would kind of put, you know, things together as far as, oh, you know, that person's older, they have a hearing aid. You know, it's kind of natural because they've gotten older. It's just part of getting older. What would you say to like somebody who like kind of that's, their understanding or belief of just saying like, oh, it's just, it's normal for, you know, somebody that age. Well, you know, normal, you know, any, any kind of disease process, I I, I always have a hard time saying it's a normal process, but it is much more common in the, you know, as we get older, the elderly population in particular has a lot of hearing loss, you know, people in the, you know, the, the military when they were younger, especially, and that's one of the most service-connected, you know, illnesses in our military is things like hearing loss and tinnitus and things like that. And so it, it can be common, but it's not normal. And it doesn't mean we treat it any differently. Well, there are plenty of people who are children, adolescents, teenagers, you know, early adults who have hearing loss. And my suspicion is, is that you don't even know it because they do such a good job compensating for it, or they're wearing a hearing aid and you can't even see it. And, you know, especially if they, you know, you can, you know, the hearing aids today are so well camouflaged that, for the most part, you may have someone you've been around several times and not even know that it's being treated. So it's really an all age group uh, disease, you know, and, uh, you know, we, I take care of basically birth to death of people who have uh, hearing loss, but, you know, it's more common in the elderly population. Sure. Yeah, for sure. I mean, similar to kind of what we deal with is, you know, it's natural for people to develop arthritis, right? Absolutely. I'm sure it's very similar. And, uh, but just because you develop arthritis doesn't mean that it's, um, you have to live with back pain, right? Absolutely. It's just like, we got to do a few extra things to keep you, you know, loose and limber and strong, but there's ways to combat against it. And it's not just that you have to kind of throw in the towel. And right? I'm sure your, your field is the same. And every 70 year old person doesn't have arthritis, but a lot of them do, sure. you know, and that's the same way with hearing loss. Sure. And your risk factor, one of the risk factors for it is getting older. So if if somebody, um, you know, is um, suspicious that they have some hearing loss, so I imagine the, the first step is getting a hearing exam. What, is, um, what does that actually look like? The medical term is an audiogram. You know, usually if I have someone who has, you know, they're seeing me for hearing loss or there's concern of hearing loss, that's the first thing I do because it's, you know, for me, it's real data, you know, because... You know, I can ask five different people with hearing loss and some people say, I don't have any hearing loss. So just going by, by, by people's own perception of what they have is, is difficult. So that audiogram actually puts that on paper and says, hey, you know, in comparison to normal, this is where you hear. And that usually is about a 30 minute, you know, um, um, process where you get exposed to, um, you know, different frequencies, so different tones. And we see where you hear and, and we basically place those tones around important, important, you know, um, hearing situations for speech and things like that. And then we actually test your ability to recognize speech, you know, the clarity of sound that you have, because, you know, you know, if we get more, you know, as we get into the weeds a little bit, those, those 
those can be important, whether or not you have good clarity still, you know, how does that correspond to your actually ability to hear tones? And, you know, a frequent thing I'll tell people is that I don't care if you can hear the dog bark or your alarm cart going off. What I really care about is can you hear speech? And so really a lot of times I'm asking patients like, how are you, you know, how are you performing on a day-to-day basis, talking to your loved ones, your coworkers, whoever. And so that, that test gives us a little bit of a basic understanding of what's going on with that patient. Sure. So let's say that shows, right, some some hearing loss. And you mentioned to start the conversation that there's different types, right, to really uh, determine um, kind of what the treatment, you know, options are. So once uh, once you determine that there are statistics or uh, just information there from the test, positive information that shows hearing loss, what would be your next kind of step with that then? Usually it's talking to the patient. One of the really critical components of all this is that I work with audiologists. They're the they're really actually, you know, they're very much hearing experts. I mean, a big part of what they do is dealing with hearing testing and fitting hearing aids. And so really working with them tightly about what their concerns are. And, you know, a lot of times if they, you know, if they have certain levels of hearing loss, they don't necessarily need to see me. They can talk to the audiologist alone and say, you know, this, this is very consistent with your age and your history. And, you know, I recommend a hearing aid. I recommend this. But if they're seeing me for that as well, you know, I'm, I'm really, really going deeply into what are the possible causes? I take their age into account, their their history, whether that's noise exposure, genetics. Have they been exposed to certain medications that can cause hearing loss? And, um, you know, do a physical exam where I actually look at the ear and say, is all this making sense together? Is there anything else I'm not considering? Are there any medical conditions that I need to be worried about that I need to test for further that can be impactful for other reasons? And so it's kind of that whole combination of the hearing test, talking to them and actually taking a look at their ear and making sure that all this fits and fits together nicely. Um, are there common medical conditions um, or somewhat common that that you see that affect hearing? Yeah. So um, you know, outside of the age-related hearing loss, you know, um, you know, anybody who has a conductive component to their hearing loss, you know, that hearing loss that is part of the conductive apparatus of the ear. Really, I'm looking to see, you know, have they had infections? You know, you know, is their physical exam normal? Do they have fluid? stuff like that that potentially is medically or surgically reversible or fixable. And then, you know, a lot of times they'll have asymmetry in their hearing. So one ear is different than the other. And that's important because, you know, occasionally you can have things like benign growths on the hearing and balance nerve or other things like that, that we need to do more investigations, like some kind of x-ray on the head or, or such as like an MRI and make sure we're not ruling anything that could be medically impactful to them just based upon their hearing. I mean, that's basically a neurological symptom, hearing loss. And so I'm really just trying to say, does all this make sense? Do I need to do anything more to get the the, the full kind of picture? What kind of consequences do you typically see for uh, someone suffering from hearing loss? Yeah, there's been a lot of really good research over the last 10 or 15 years that really addressing this. And we do know that there is a correlation between hearing loss and social isolation. So people not wanting to go out in public because they can't hear very well. They don't, you know, they have, they're frustrated by, you know, having to say what frequently or having other people repeat themselves. And, you know, we know that that's actually linked to things like depression and anxiety. Now, is one causing the other? It's hard to know. We just know there's a really strong link between those two. And then more recently, we've actually found out there's a significant link to hearing loss and dementia. And for a long time, I think that there was some, there was uh, a lot of, clues that those could be tied together. But there was a lot of other factors like cardiovascular health, like things like, you know, you know, uh, are there arteries part of this, like high blood pressure, diabetes. But in reality, what we found is, is that it's an independent risk factor for dementia. 
And the more hearing loss that you have, the more that goes up. So if someone has severe hearing loss, which is very, you know, impactful in their day-to-day life, it can have up to a five, maybe even more, you know, five times or even more risk of developing dementia. And as we all know, dementia is something that no one wants. I mean, it can be devastating for families and, and, and patients. And so we, we know that that's at least an independent risk factor for dementia. And that's a reason why we do recommend things like hearing aids and, and, and anything we can do to rehabilitate the hearing. So yeah, getting into treatments uh, for hearing loss. So, you know, we've already mentioned a little bit about, you know, hearing aids. Um, and that's really what an audiologist is primary. I mean, that's their kind of what that's they do. The def- what that's they do. big. They're a big part of their expertise. I mean, they have, they do several things, but I would say talking about hearing aids is really, that's, that's something that they are very much experts on. Um, and then, so going from there, other treatment options for hearing loss? Yeah, so it depends upon the cause. I would say the most common thing is, is we do nothing. We observe it, you know, if they have some very mild hearing loss or give hearing aids for especially people who don't have anything that we feel is correctable. And then there are a variety of surgeries and implants and things like that that really are dictated by what the patient has going on. So if they have um, an ear bone that's a problem, sometimes we can replace that and fix it. If it's a hole in the eardrum, we can repair it. If there's chronic infections or fluid, we can get rid of that, you know, and, that, and there's a lot of different ways to go about doing that. And then there are certain implants, some that actually bypass the ear, eardrum and ear bone. Those are called bone conduction implants. And then, in this, you know, in people with severe to profound or even a little bit less, you know, even, even less severe hearing loss than that, we can do things like a cochlear implant. And so we really have a lot of tools at our, at our, at our use that we can actually do, use to, you know, have people interact and communicate better on a day-to-day basis. Sure. Well, tell us a little, um, a little bit more about the cochlear implants. And I, I mean, it's a, I think a, a term that probably people have maybe heard before, but, um, but yeah, tell us a little bit more about what that means, what it does. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Uh, cochlear implants are something that are near and dear to any otologist or neurotologist heart. It's something that we, we really are um, huge advocates for because we're really taking a, a population of people who really struggle from a job and a social standpoint and, you know, many aspects of their life. And we can actually get them back to, to a better functioning self. And really, I think any physician, but particularly me, that's what I'm after. How can we make you function in your day-to-day life better? And cochlear implants are really kind of the end, end game for, for some of the most severe kinds of hearing loss. And what it is, is an electrical device that we implant surgically. And what it does is it bypasses the most common areas of injury of the inner ear. The inner ear structure that's responsible for hearing is called the cochlea. And that's frequently has a lot of injury to it from noise, genetics, whatever, age, tons of different reasons for you to have in- injury there. And we basically bypass that injury and we stimulate the, the hearing nerve directly. It's a lot different than your normal your normal hearing, you know, or, or the, the, the hearing you were born with because you know, your brain basically has to adapt to it. You know, it's um, it's not normal hearing, but it's much improved to what some of these people are used to. And it takes them from potentially not being able to use the phone to using the phone. It takes them where they can continue to be, they can continue to work. And we don't know this 100%, but hopefully it can help, you know, uh, decrease the risk of things like dementia, you know, these long-term health consequences of not being able to hear. So with um, a cochlear implant, so that would be a treatment uh, for somebody that wouldn't be needed for somebody with um, just a hearing loss that a hearing aid would fix. Like a hearing aid, does that just amplify the sound? That's a really great question. So when we have people with hearing loss, one of the things I'm looking for is do they have clarity of sound still, clarity of speech? And a hearing aid does a really good job on someone who 
has preserved clarity of speech, and they just really need volume. And hearing aids are more are more uh, advanced in just giving strictly volume. They're giving volume where it's needed on their that we actually see on their hearing tests, where they may have a high frequency or low frequency hearing loss, and we're actually amplifying that. So they're more complex than that. They can have Bluetooth capability where they can actually go to their phone. So their signal to noise is what we call it is higher. So they do better. But once you get to a point of, of certain damage to the ear, um, you know the clarity goes away. And hearing aids, all they do in that scenario is potentially is amplify noise. And that can be super frustrating because they're like, I hear stuff, but it doesn't make any sense. And that's that's kind of the thing I'm getting after is how are you doing with your hearing aids? If they're struggling with their hearing aids, then we say, are you someone who would benefit from a cochlear implant? Because in certain patients or many of those patients, a cochlear implant can restore a part of that clarity where they can actually communicate more effectively on their day-to-day basis. It's a really long conversation. It's, we take a, we spend a lot of time with these patients to help them understand, you know, what does a cochlear implant mean? What can I expect? Who is it good for? Um, because it may not be good for somebody. We really take our time to make sure that we are making decisions regarding this, we're taking the time that's, that's needed. And uh, one of the things that we know, uh, you know, that that you know that we're really concentrating on is that we're only getting about probably five to ten percent of the people who could benefit from a cochlear implant actually get one. And it's similar to that for hearing aids. So we have a huge portion of the population that are going untreated from a hearing loss perspective. You know, that's a, that's a very small percentage of people sure. we're actually actually getting to. And my job really is podcasts like this is trying to advocate, market, get these things out there. Say, hey, you know, like there are options for people with hearing loss who are struggling um, that can be hearing aids only, maybe a cochlear implant, maybe something else, but there are options. And I just really want to make sure we're targeting as a big a percentage of those people patients as we can. Sure. Uh, last question that really goes over hearing and how it relates to hearing is um, tinnitus. And you mentioned that, I think, um, earlier just in conversation just a bit. Yeah, tell us a little bit, uh, maybe just overview of what that is and how it affects hearing and, and what what you do for that. Yeah, tinnitus is, is something that is very frustrating from both a patient and my perspective because there just aren't a lot of treatments out there that are super effective. But Tinnitus is really the perception of a sound when none is present. And um, it can be described in a lot of different ways. Ringing is probably the most common cause, but people will say, oh, it sounds like an ocean, or it sounds like crickets, or it sounds like a rumbling. Those are all kind of uh, the same thing. And um, we, we don't exactly understand it perfectly well, but we do think that there's some injury into the ear that causes the the kind of the kind of communication pathway between the ear and the brain to... Um, be reorganized or, or become dysfunctional. And um, then there's the perception of ringing after that. And, you know, there's no there's no real easy cure for that. There's really, you know, there's only a lot of ways that we help cope with it or, or diminish the actual tinnitus. And the thing that we see most commonly with tinnitus is hearing loss. And so, you know, when there's damage to the ear, it usually causes hearing loss and potentially tinnitus to some degree. For most people, just monitoring it, observing it is, is the, 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 the right treatment because they're not bothered by it. It's not making them anxious or depressed. Um, it's annoying to them. But, you know, when they're busy, they're working, they don't notice it. When they sit down at night, when it's quiet or they're going to sleep, that's when they perce- perceive it. But otherwise, it doesn't bother them. There's a smaller percentage of patients that it actually does bother them a fair amount where it does interfere with their communication. It could potentially cause depression, anxiety, and more than anything, a decreased quality of life. And that's when we're really a little bit more intense about doing things like hearing aids because hearing aids actually will help mask or actually decrease the perception of tinnitus. 
there are certain triggers that we know that can make it worse, like caffeine, stress, you know, sleep and things like that. We try to do lifestyle things to really help these things, uh, help people perceive their tinnitus as less. And there's all kinds of different noise and, and masking therapy and then uh, that are moderately successful. Um, and then really the only thing that's really heavily supported by our academy is, is cognitive, cognitive behavioral therapy. And those are for people who are really disturbed by their, their tinnitus. And that's really where my concentration is. And people see me for tinnitus is like, where are you on that? Where are you super stressed by this? Are you anxious, depressed, or are you not? Because that will help me figure out if I need to intensify therapy in some way or not. Yeah, I mean, that's something we, you know, see some here in the clinic too. And it's, you know, similar conversation of like, hey, listen, there's a lot of, you know, we don't know about it. Uh, but oftentimes we'll see some, um, you know, whether stress, anxiety and um, muscle, you know, tension, movement, dysfunction, you know, related on that. And, you know, we have to just explain like, hey, we're, you know, seeing things that aren't even. Um, so our, you know, our strategy is let's, let's work on evening this out, reducing tension and stress around the muscles that can refer symptoms to the ear um, and then track your progress, right? Yeah, people, you know, that that's a, which is a great point. I mean, you know, physical therapy, I think is a critical part of that for many people because if they're holding muscular tension in their jaw or their, or their head otherwise, we know that that can change or alter the perception of tinnitus. And, and it makes a lot of sense that if we can help diminish that, it would either have less stress in their life or actually potentially alter the tinnitus. So I'm sure you see that a fair amount too. And I'm sure you've had a lot of success with it. And, and honestly, I think it's an underutilized portion of what we do. Sure. Um, awesome. Well, um, yeah, thanks for um, diving deep into to hearing loss here today. <laughs> we always um, like to end the show. And I know we were chatting a little bit beforehand since you're uh, new to the area. It'd be um, interesting to see how we finish with these last few questions. Um, most of my guests have been here for more than seven or eight weeks. Um, <laughs> but um, we always like to finish with a few rapid fire questions. So um, Dr. Mattingly, tell us um, something that's on your bucket list to do. You probably have a big bucket list around Knoxville since you're new to the area, but something you love to go do when you, when you have some free time. Uh, to explore. Yeah, definitely. We, my, my, my wife and, and, and my son and I, we want to get involved more into some of the water in the area. Uh, maybe go in the mountains and canoe, kayak or whitewater raft or something like that. Cause we love being in, in that area. Yeah. Yeah. And then um, the one thing that I was thinking of actually is that, you know, there's all this water around us and I haven't been on it yet or, you know, and, and at some point I'd like to get, you know, rent a boat or something and go out. I'm not sure. Just some way to get out there and enjoy because I grew up going to the lake a bunch and this is beautiful sure. to be in an area like this. So, Well, um, one thing we're planning on doing when it gets a little bit warmer, which I'm um, not sure if you heard about it, it'd be an easy trip to be in the mountains on the river is go up to Townsend and you can float the little, um, little river is a pigeon, little river, little river. Um, and, um, you, you have inner twos and companies you can uh, rent an inner two for like 10 bucks perfect. and float down. So perfect for a young kid and, uh, families. Just so, let me know. I will be there. Yeah. I promise. <laughs> um, so what's, um, one of your favorite places to enjoy outside around Knoxville that you have had a chance to enjoy? We go to a lot of parks because we have a young child, you know, he, we like to go and, and visit all those areas, but anywhere where we can look out on over the water. Um, and then really a couple hikes we've been on so far in the Smokies, um, we've really enjoyed those. You know, one of the, the ones we went most recently was Rainbow Falls okay. and okay. Um, yep. it, it, it was, you know, it was, it was, the traffic was pretty heavy, but it was beautiful seeing all the water yeah. and hearing the water and just getting out and getting some exercise and stuff like that. That's those, those, those are where we are. Um, at our best, my, my family and I are just 
love being out in those those um, environments. Nice. Uh, favorite restaurant here around Knoxville? Mm, that's a great question. Um, favorite restaurant? Well, we go to the Lakeside Tavern a fair amount because we live very close to it, and it's nice mm-hmm. to just look over the water and and, and nice uh, have a nice little meal and just you know yeah. just relax. And so, as of right now, that's it. I'm sure that will change over time, but so far, so good with it. I, we really enjoy going there. So nice. Well, um, what can you leave us, our listeners, with uh, as far as your best tip or recommendation for staying healthy in regards to uh, hearing loss? Yeah, if you um, if you you know limit your noise exposure as much as possible, and when you are around loud noises, you know use hearing protection, whether it be earplugs or earmuffs. And uh, if you read into the packaging of a lot of those, they'll actually tell you what it's good for, and and you know if if it's if it's inadequate sound protection, and really I'm talking about things that you know like um, you know shooting firearms and you know hunting and things like that, or anything along you know, that's a, that's a roughly equivalent to that. So anything that you feel like it's just too loud wear hearing protection. And then if you have a problem, whether it's new ringing, new hearing loss, new dizziness, um, you know, give us a call. We're always going to check you out and make sure everything looks good. And that was last question. So how can people get in contact with you? Yeah. So, um, our, our group, um, is primarily out of the park West hospital. Um, and, uh, our main office is at, is at, at that hospital. Uh, we have a couple other offices, um, downtown in Lenore city, and um, uh, you can call our office at uh, 865-693-6065 and we'll take care of you. We have uh, a wonderful um, you know, group of physicians and audiologists and staff that uh, can really do a good job of making sure we're getting to the bottom of what's ever going on with you. Awesome. Well, thank you. Thank you again uh, for coming on uh, the show. I appreciate you having me. This is always great to get to know people and talk about things that are near and dear to my heart. I'm a little bit, you know, obviously people are going to like, oh, he's a big nerd because of that, but <laughs> I'll take it. So my partners are definitely going to say that. They're like, oh, you ear nerds, you know? So that, that's definitely, uh, that's, that's something that's very important to me, obviously. Well, um, we're glad that we have nerds in different areas <laughs> yes. of what they are so that we can um, enjoy when we, um, you know, gathering uh, whether help when we need help in those areas. So, Uh, So thanks again for uh, coming on the show and uh, stay healthy, Knoxville. Thank you for tuning in to the Stay Healthy Knoxville podcast brought to you by Simply Physio. If your pain is preventing you from staying healthy and active and you'd like to avoid surgery, pain medicine, or just want to get back to doing the things you love in and around Knoxville, we offer both a free ebook and free over-the-phone consultation to help you figure out the root cause of your pain and the next best steps for resolving it. Find our ebooks online at simplypt.com/health-tips. There you will find ebooks for topics such as neck and shoulder pain, lower back and hip pain, knee pain, and TMJ. These quick-to-read reports will provide you with expert tips, tricks, and exercises to help solve your pain from the comfort of your own home. Just visit simplypt.com health-tips to download your ebook and have it delivered directly to your inbox. We also offer free, no-obligation phone consultations with a doctor of physical therapy to Knoxville area residents. Just call us at 865-351-0615 or visit us at simplypt.com and click the Talk to a PT button on the home page to schedule a call with us. Thanks again for joining us, and we will see you next time on the Stay Healthy Knoxville podcast.